Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. And for the first time in this series, we are doing back-to-back episodes because I am going out of town later this week, and I'm not sure how much work I'll be able to get done and when the next one will be out. But we are finally getting down to the wire with this series, and I'm really excited about that. But before we get on to this next episode, I want to say a couple of things about California Dreaming. This is an independent ad-free podcast. So that means that I am completely dependent upon your support. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to your shows on. When you do, it helps give us more visibility. It brings us more listeners. And that's what we want at the end of the day. You can recommend the podcast and listener discussion and fan groups. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Give us some likes and retweets and whatnot over there. And if you just can't get enough California Dreaming, you can subscribe to Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you will gain access to dozens of exclusive bonuses that you won't hear anywhere else. I am in the middle of a series right now on one of the worst moms ever. So if that sounds like something that you would enjoy listening to, come on over and check it out. You can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes. And if a subscription isn't something that you're interested in, but you would still like to help pay some bills over here, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. I do have some new patrons to thank, but I didn't take the time to go through my emails and jot down names. So, and that's just because I was in a hurry to get this recorded. But I will thank you guys in the next one. As a reminder, the sources of this episode include the book by Wall Street journalist John Carreyrou called Bad Blood. And I am still having the giveaway um, for the copy of Bad Blood. I'm going to do a drawing as soon as the series is over. So there's still time to comment on the post in Facebook. I think I had a post on Instagram and also on Twitter. And on Patreon too. So if you're not on social media, but you are on Patreon, you should still be able to see the post for that over there. Okay, so everything will be cited in the show and in the show notes as needed. So let's go ahead and get back to this story. To recap the last part, we went Back in time to reintroduce ourselves to some of the earlier players in the story, Stanford professor of medicine, Phyllis Gardner, who Elizabeth spoke to early on about her patch idea right before she dropped out and founded Theranos. Phyllis was an early skeptic of the technology that Elizabeth was proposing, but she was definitely one of the few who saw the improbability of being able to develop the type of microtechnology that Elizabeth had dreamt up. We also revisited Richard Fwiz. He has definitely become a longtime member of the I Hate Elizabeth Holmes Club. He resurfaces and starts finding people to connect in order to try and bring Theranos down. He introduced Phyllis Gardner to Ian Gibbons' widow, Rochelle. Richard eventually connected with Adam Rosendorf. Then Richard made contact with Dr. Adam Clapper, who was a pathologist who also kept a blog. 
who also had doubts about Theranos' alleged technology after he read about it in the New Yorker article, and ultimately it was Dr. Clapper who was the very first to reach out to Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyrou, who began his extensive work investigating Theranos and its lab practices in February of 2015. He talked to Phyllis, he talked to Rochelle, he talked to Adam Rosendorf, Tyler Schultz, and Erica Chung. Everyone was giving John some really good inside information. John also reached out to some Phoenix area doctors who shared some of their discontent with Theranos' lab tests. He came across a number of stories where real live patients were given faulty blood test results who, if they hadn't had second test run to verify whether or not their results were accurate, could have been given treatment or failed to be given treatment as a direct result of what their Theranos lab results told them. Theranos is lucky, as I do not think that there has been anyone verified to have been severely harmed or killed as a direct result of Theranos blood test results. Fortunately, I don't think Theranos had enough time to get there to actually cause somebody to die. I think they would have, though, if they hadn't been stopped. Definitely some crazy stuff going on with their blood test results. There were plenty of emergencies and stressful days and nights and testing and retesting lab results that were not only off, they were off at times to a point that it wasn't even within the realm of possibility. We saw John Carreyrou himself get blood tested at both Theranos and LabCorp, and he was given the very useful information from LabCorp that he had some high cholesterol. Theranos, on the other hand, tested John's cholesterol as being at near optimal levels. We left off with John having gotten in touch with Theranos' public relations guy, Matthew Traub, in an attempt to schedule an appointment for John to speak to Elizabeth face-to-face. John also put in a request to visit Theranos' headquarters and laboratory, and we know that that's probably not going to happen over Sonny's dead body, right? Because at the end of the day, that's who we'd like to see sacrifice next. Let's go ahead and pick up the story from there. Tyler Schultz lived with some roommates at a house that he rented with five friends that was located about a half hour away from his parents' house, which was in the town of Los Gatos. Tyler made it a point to try and stop by at least twice a month to have dinner with his parents. And that is what the plan was the afternoon of May 27th, 2015. But when he got to his mom and dad's house that day, as soon as he saw his dad, Tyler knew that something was up. His dad looked pretty stressed out. And he finally asked Tyler for the truth. Did you talk to a journalist about Theranos? Tyler admitted that he had. And his dad had to break it to him. They know about it. They being Theranos, a.k.a. Elizabeth. She knows. Grandpa had just called and expressed his concerns about Tyler getting himself into a whole heap of trouble. And if you want to stay out of the crosshairs, Grandpa said, then Tyler needed to meet with Theranos attorneys the following day. 
They had some documents that they wanted Tyler to sign. Tyler called Grandpa and told him that he wanted to speak to him in person that night without any lawyers present. Grandpa agreed and told Tyler they'd be home in a few hours, come by, and they could talk. After Tyler ate dinner with his parents, he went home to try and think about what he was going to say to his grandpa. Tyler also gave John Carreyrou a call too. And Tyler didn't have to utter more than a word or two before John could tell that something was really wrong. He asked John if it was he who told Theranos that he was talking to him. And John promised Tyler that it wasn't him. He would never reveal his sources. It's one of the most serious things for a journalist, that confidentiality. He would never reveal anybody's identity that he promised to keep secret. So John and Tyler tried to sit there and figure out how Theranos found out that it was him. Meanwhile, Theranos' public relations guy, Matt Traub, was still stalling on getting John an appointment to meet with Elizabeth and then finally just asked for John to email over the questions that he wanted Elizabeth to answer. So John sent over an overview of the topics that he wanted to discuss, things that were ranging from questions about lab certification and proficiency testings to the topic of their former lead chemist, Ian Gibbons. John sent a CC of the email to Tyler, and that's when he realized how he could have been found out. John had jotted some things down in his email that he sent over to public relations that included some information about a coefficient variation without realizing that he was using the language and data that Tyler had also used in calculating what he had figured. That is how Tyler believed that he was connected to the investigative reporter. There was no one else that John could have gotten that information from. Tyler wasn't that worried about it. If they connected him to John Carreyrou through one specific variation calculation, then that could be easily explained away as potentially having come from any number of individuals at Theranos. Anyway, Tyler didn't tell John that he was fixing to go over to see his grandpa later that night after they got off the phone, but he did tell John that Theranos wanted to meet with him at the headquarters with their attorneys, and John told Tyler if it were me, I wouldn't go. Don't go. He wasn't a Theranos employee anymore, and he had no obligation to meet with them or any of their demands of him. John said if he went, Theranos attorneys were going to try to get him to talk, spill on who else is talking to reporters, and find out what he's saying. Tyler said he was still thinking it over and that he would call John back the next day. Tyler got to his grandpa's house around 8.45 that night and waited for him and his step-grandmother to get home from their dinner date. They drove up and Tyler waited for a few minutes while they made their way into their house. And then Tyler finally let himself in the front door. Grandpa and Grandma were waiting for him. The first thing George said was, are you speaking to reporters about Theranos? Tyler decided that the best thing for him to do in that moment was to lie to Grandpa. No, I have no idea why anyone at Theranos would think that. George said, Elizabeth knows that you've been talking to the Wall Street Journal. She said the reporter used the exact phrasing that's in one of your emails. Grandma said, 
it had something to do with numbers. And then Tyler said, well, you know, Grandpa, lots of people have seen the same data in the same emails. The Wall Street Journal could be talking to any number of people. But Grandpa got pretty serious in his tone. Elizabeth said that the only person that that data could have come from is you. But Tyler stood by what he told his grandpa. He had no idea how that reporter obtained any information that Tyler may have had or written. And then George told Tyler, this is for your own good. Elizabeth told George that if the Wall Street Journal publishes an investigative article on Theranos, then Tyler's career in the industry would be in shambles. Tyler wasn't going to admit to his grandpa that he was talking to the Wall Street Journal reporter, but he was going to try once again to try to convince grandpa that Theranos was very problematic and that they are the ones who are lying and they're lying to him and they're telling him things that are deceptive and untrue. Tyler repeated many of the things that he said last year leading up to his resignation, but grandpa continued to stand by Elizabeth and said, that Theranos attorneys have a new document that they want him to sign just to double down on his promises to keep Theranos information confidential. The Wall Street Journal was going to include Theranos' trade secrets and they have to make sure that they do everything that they can to protect those secrets and that included having Tyler reaffirm his obligations to keep Theranos business confidential. Tyler told Grandpa that he doesn't see what any of that has to do with him, but he would think about it if that meant Theranos would just get off his back. But then Grandpa, unfortunately, pulled a fast one. He had two Theranos attorneys hiding upstairs. And once Tyler realized what his grandpa had done, he felt like he had been set up by his own grandfather, no less. He told his grandpa earlier in the day that when he asked to meet with him that evening, he wanted to talk without lawyers. Grandpa asked Tyler if he could go get the attorneys, and Tyler, feeling kind of trapped, said it was okay. He was afraid that if he tried to leave, that it would make him look even worse. As Grandpa made his way up the stairs, Tyler's stepgrandmother had a couple of things to say to Tyler privately. She let him know that she was starting to have doubts about Theranos devices, and if they really worked... And she told Tyler that Henry was starting to think the same thing. Henry Kissinger, that is. And she also said that Henry was contemplating getting out, meaning out of Theranos, off their board of directors. Suddenly, two attorneys appeared at the top of the stairs and quickly made their way towards Tyler. It was Mike Brill and Meredith Dearborn, partners at David Boyce's law firm. Mike Brill told Tyler that he was given the job of figuring out who the confidential sources were speaking to the Wall Street Journal reporter, and it only took a few clicks around the computer to figure out that Tyler was one of them. And at that point, Tyler was given three documents, and they demanded that he sign them. One was a restraining order, one was a summons to appear in court in two days, and the other was an official notice that they believed Tyler was in breach of the various NDAs and confidentiality agreements that he had signed and that Theranos was intending to file a lawsuit against him. Tyler reiterated that he was not speaking to any journalists, but the two attorneys continued to badger Tyler. They accused him of lying, 
They said that they knew he was lying, that they knew that he was talking to the Wall Street Journal. And this went on for much longer than it should have, especially inside his own grandfather's house. Tyler had been ambushed, and for the most part, Grandma and Grandpa just could do nothing really but stand by uncomfortably while Tyler was being attacked. Finally, Grandpa stepped in after Tyler said that this conversation that they were having needed to be finished. And George went and told the attorneys, this is my grandson, I know him, and he is not a liar. If he's telling you that he didn't speak to any reporter, then he didn't speak to any reporter. And then George asked the two attorneys to leave. And when they left, Grandpa called Elizabeth to tell her that she didn't send the attorneys over to just talk to Tyler. They came over there to threaten and intimidate him. That's not what they had talked about. And George told Elizabeth that Tyler was ready to face off in court. But Charlotte, Tyler's step-grandmother, quickly took the phone and told Elizabeth that that's not what Tyler was saying. George got back on the phone and they agreed to meet again in the morning. And this time, the attorneys would come with only the one-page confidentiality agreement that he was told they were bringing for Tyler to sign. He also told Elizabeth to send a different attorney. However, Elizabeth blew off George's request yet again and sent the same Mike Brill. It was so blatant how Elizabeth was lying to George and manipulating him. Brill had some other documents with him. This time it was a paper that he wanted Tyler to sign that stated that he never spoke to anyone about Theranos and that he promised to produce the names of every current and former Theranos employee that he was aware of that was talking to the Wall Street Journal but Tyler flat out refused to sign. Grandpa also spoke up for him and stated, Tyler isn't a snitch. Finding out who spoke to the Wall Street Journal is Theranos' problem, not his. Mike Brill paid no attention to what George Schultz was saying and continued to pressure Tyler into signing and naming names, but Tyler continued to refuse. After several more minutes of this, Grandpa finally asked the attorney if he could speak to him privately in another room. Grandpa came back to Tyler a few minutes later and said, what needs to happen in order for you to sign this paper that he wants you to sign? And Tyler said that he would sign it if they would amend the document to include a promise to never file any lawsuits against him. So Grandpa went back to the other room with a document and he took a pencil and he hand wrote a line that read Theranos would not sue Tyler for a period of two years. Tyler still said no, that's not enough. It has to be forever. So Grandpa crossed out two years and changed it to ever. And it seemed like they were going to be able to reach an agreement Tyler might be willing to sign. But when he had a few minutes to think it over while George made the final changes to the document, Tyler decided that since Theranos has Mike Brill there to protect their interests with this document, Tyler decided that he needed to have his attorney look over the document to make sure that it's considered by someone who has Tyler's interests in mind. Both Grandpa and Mike Brill were becoming kind of impatient, so George finally asked Tyler if he would possibly want his attorney to take a look at the document and advise him as to what would be okay and not okay for him to do. And with that, Tyler agreed. So George went up to his office to fax those papers over to his attorney, a gentleman by the name of Bob Anders. 
And while Grandpa was busy doing that, Tyler went into the kitchen to try and look through his grandparents' stuff to see if he could fi- find Bob Anders' phone number so that he could get a hold of him before his grandpa did. Charlotte was the one who ended up giving Tyler the phone number while he was frantically looking and told him to call him right away. And Tyler did and explained what was going on. But when Anders asked Tyler who was representing Theranos, Tyler said the documents that he was being asked to sign had been signed by someone named David Boys. The name rattled Anders. He recognized him as one of the most powerful attorneys in the country. Bob Anders decided that it would be best if he talked to Tyler in person, and he asked him to come into a San Francisco office that afternoon, which Tyler did. After speaking to his grandpa's lawyer in person, Tyler decided that he was not going to sign anything for Theranos. So Bob Anders called up Theranos' attorneys and informed them that Tyler wasn't signing, and they said okay, that they'd be suing him. However, later that same night, Mike Brill sent an email to Bob Anders telling him that they were going to back off filing a lawsuit against Tyler right away because they wanted to see if they could reach a mutual agreement first. This was a big relief for Tyler when Anders called him and told him that he could relax. No court summons was coming for him in the morning, at least for now. Tyler was referred to an attorney named Stephen Taylor, who would be better suited to handle these types of complex corporate disputes as opposed to grandpa's estate attorney. And over the course of the next few weeks, Tyler's attorney and Theranos' attorneys went back and forth with its various versions of the document that they wanted Tyler to sign. Tyler had even been willing to admit that he spoke to the Wall Street Journal reporter. Theranos was willing to cast Tyler as being young and naive and that he was lied to and tricked by the reporter, but Tyler wasn't willing to say that. He knew what he was doing, and there was nothing about his age or being ignorant that had anything to do with it. But Tyler did say that he would be willing to admit to being a junior employee who had nothing more than menial tasks to work on at Theranos, and he had no idea what he was talking about when it came to anything that had to do with the laboratory or the way that it operated. But there were two problems that neither side were willing to budge on. Theranos wanted Tyler to name everybody that he knew who was talking to the reporter and that they were refusing to promise to not sue his parents or heirs along with the promise to not sue him. Finally, Mike Brill had had enough. He told Tyler that if he refused to sign and refused to name the Wall Street Journal's sources, then he would make sure that their law firm drove him and his family into bankruptcy. Tyler also found out that Theranos was having him followed by private investigators. As the stalemate carried on, George Schultz had called up Tyler's mom and dad, and he related to them that he had just spoken to Elizabeth, and she told him that Tyler was the one who leaked all of Theranos' business to that Wall Street Journal reporter, and that Tyler was being exceedingly stubborn about everything. Tyler's mom and dad tried talking to him again. They actually tried begging him to sign whatever it was that they wanted him to sign, because if he didn't, Theranos was going to cost them everything, their life savings, their home, everything. They'd have to get rid of it all in order to pay for Tyler's legal expenses. Tyler wanted to tell them that they were oversimplifying everything, but he just couldn't explain everything to them because he wasn't allowed to. 
Tyler's attorney, Stephen Taylor, found an attorney to represent Tyler's mom and dad. So that way he would be able to speak to them through the attorneys and everything would be kept confidential with attorney client privilege. But then something happened that shook the Schultz family up yet again. Just after Tyler's mom and dad met with their brand new attorney, it was right after their very first meeting, just a couple of hours later, her car was broken into and her messenger bag that she had her notes that she had jotted down from speaking with the Schultzes, all of that was written down in this bag and it was gone. Tyler couldn't prove it, but he was pretty sure that Theranos was behind it. Meanwhile, John Carreyrou was completely out of touch with Tyler. He had a feeling that Theranos was coming down on him hard, but Tyler wasn't answering his burner phone or his alias email. John persisted for several weeks, hoping that Tyler would light back up again. But until then, John just had to wait and wonder. He couldn't say anything to Theranos about it because he didn't want to blow Tyler's cover. John was hoping that Tyler would be able to withstand the pressure that he was certain Theranos was placing on him, but he couldn't be sure. John did have those emails that Tyler was able to forward to him where Tyler had sent his concerns to Elizabeth and Sonny, as well as that anonymous complaint that he filed that triggered that surprise inspection. John was also busy trying to land that elusive interview that he'd been asking for with Elizabeth through her PR guy, Mike Traub. While Traub was continuing to drag his feet, John was seeing Elizabeth giving interviews to every other journalist on the planet except for him. She was on CNN and CBS and CNBC, Every single time John turned on the TV, there she was giving interviews. So he finally said, look, Theranos is only going to be able to stall the inevitable for so long. He had some questions that needed to be answered. And if he couldn't get it straight from Elizabeth herself, then send somebody else to represent Theranos because he wanted his questions addressed. Finally, Traub said that he could arrange a meeting with someone from Theranos to meet at the Boys Schiller offices in Manhattan. At first, John was like, finally, but then he thought about it for a few and decided that it probably wouldn't be a good idea to meet in the law offices of Theranos attorneys. That's a trap. So John insisted that they come and meet at the Wall Street Journal's offices instead so that John can be on his own turf. That meeting was set for June 23, 2015 at one o'clock in the afternoon. Theranos representatives arrived and they had four attorneys, David Boys, Mike Brill, Meredith Dearborn, and Heather King, who used to be some kind of assistant for Hillary Clinton at some time in the past. She used to be a partner at the Boys Schiller Law Firm. And they also had their public relations guy, Matthew Traub, along with Peter Fritzwich, who used to be a Wall Street Journal reporter turned research firm co-founder and the only person actually from Theranos representing Theranos itself was Daniel Young, the company's number three guy, essentially. So neither Elizabeth or Sonny had the balls to show up and confront Carrie Roos questions face to face. John had brought a couple of his colleagues with him too, including his editor and the Wall Street Journal's general counsel. 
Both of them knew what John had been doing, and they also knew who John's sources were. The first thing that John was told was that their primary goal was to refute all of the falsehoods that are woven throughout the list of questions that he had emailed a few weeks earlier that he was demanding answers to. And the next thing that John was told by these attorneys was that they knew that one of his confidential sources was Tyler Schultz. But John just had to keep a straight face about it. There was no way that they were going to get him to admit to anything about anyone being any kind of source. And then they went in on how Tyler, along with all the other disgruntled former employees that John had been talking to, are all unreliable because they all have an axe to grind with Theranos. And then David Boys made the statement, interrupting the lawyers who were pretty much just taking turns going off on John. Boys said, we really just want to go through this step by step so that you see that there just really isn't a story here. John wanted to get to the questions that he had. He had sent emails over with a list of questions that he wanted answers to, but then their attorney, Heather King, she snapped more than she had already been snapping at everybody and said, we are not consenting to your publication of our trade secrets. John was resolved to not let this room of attorneys intimidate him. So he replied, we do not consent to waiving our journalistic privileges. That kind of got Heather King to back down a little bit and to start getting into John's list of questions. But the only person who should be answering those questions was Daniel Young, Theranos' vice president. But John actually didn't really get all that far. He wanted to know about the third-party commercial blood analyzers that Theranos had been a big purchaser of. Daniel Young admitted that Theranos did own several commercial blood analyzers that are available to any lab who wants to purchase them, and he insisted that the only reason that they had them was to compare Theranos blood test results to the third-party machines. John wanted to know if one of the machines was the Siemens Advia. Daniel Young refused to answer. John wanted to know if Theranos lab technicians were running finger stick blood samples from Walgreens patients on modified Siemens Advia machines using a different kind of dilution protocol. Daniel Young again refused to answer. We know for sure now that John is showing some of his cards here. He's got some real inside dirt on Theranos. But all Daniel has to do is claim that that information is a trade secret and cannot be shared with the public. John could tell that after a few more questions, he wasn't going to be getting anywhere. They weren't willing to answer any of them with any measure of truth. David Boy said that they wanted to help, but they just could not share Theranos' blood testing methods because of their two biggest competitors, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp. They were willing to go to any lengths to find out how Theranos' technology works. They have to protect their proprietary technology. And then... The meeting turned ugly. Voices were getting raised and no progress was being made. John wanted to know straight up what was Theranos doing that was a trade secret if they were using commercially available third-party blood analyzers. How is that secret technology? All John was told is that it's not that simple. And then John wanted to know about the Edison. How many tests can be ran on it? Was there really all this never-before-seen technology? Does it really exist? Are they running patient tests on third-party machines? 
are the finger stick blood samples giving reliable results. Still, Theranos and their attorneys gave up no answers with any real substance, and this went on for more than four hours. The handful of things that Daniel Young did admit to included to having some problems with potassium levels being kind of wonky, but they resolved that problem and every patient has received accurate results, so he says. Adam Rosendorf said the opposite, that the faulty results were going out to patients all over Phoenix, and the complaints coming into Theranos were piling up. Daniel Young admitted that Theranos did not conduct its proficiency tests the way that all other labs do, and he attributed that to Theranos' technology being one of a kind. John was dubious. But Daniel Young continued. He admitted that the CLIA certification inspector did not see their Normandy lab with all of the Edisons in it, but only the Jurassic Park lab with all of the third-party machines. But Daniel insisted that the inspector was aware of the second lab, but didn't ask to see it, which John also did not believe. John then asked about Ian Gibbons. Daniel dismissed Ian as having been important to Theranos in the beginning stages of the development of their technology, but he wasn't doing well. He battled health problems. He had become quite unpredictable and withdrawn and was no longer up to speed with the direction that Theranos was headed. They called Ian an alcoholic and his wife as being not credible because she refused to give a sworn statement in the lawsuit Theranos had against Richard Fwiz. And while John let it be known that he had talked to Ian's widow, Rochelle, and she had gone on the record and everything that she told him, she swore to tell the truth under penalty of perjury. After five hours of tense back and forth between them all, the meeting finally sputtered to an end. And John Carreyrou could tell that he was probably going to be on all of their bad sides for the foreseeable future. So circling back to Erica Chung, she had landed a new job working in the lab for another biotech company called Antibody Solutions. She happened to be there later than usual one evening when one of her co-workers came to tell her that there was a man in the parking lot asking to speak to her, and he had been out there for a while. This immediately got Erica nervous. She had been getting calls from Theranos' HR person, Mona, telling her that she needed to speak to her immediately, that this was important, but Erica decided to ignore the messages. She figured that this man outside must have something to do with those phone calls. Well, Erica was fixing to leave work for the afternoon around 6 p.m. It was a Friday, so there weren't that many people left at work. So Erica asked her coworker to walk with her car to her because she was a little bit nervous. And when they got to the parking lot, the man waiting for Erica got out of his car handed her an envelope, and then quickly left. What bothered Erica about this was the fact that the address listed on the outside of the envelope is an address that nobody knew that Erica was staying at. She had moved out of her Oakland apartment just a couple of weeks earlier, and she was planning on moving to China that fall, so she didn't want to get set up in a new place, so she ended up staying with a co-worker. Nobody knew that she was there at this co-worker's house, not even her mom and dad. So the fact that she had just started staying there, she had never made that address her official address, and she wasn't even there all that often. The fact that they had that address had Erica thinking that she must have been followed. 
Inside, the letter read, Dear Miss Chung, This firm represents Theranos, Inc. We have reason to believe that you have disclosed certain of the company's trade secrets and other confidential information without authorization. We also have reason to believe that you have done so in connection with making false and defamatory statements about the company for the purpose of harming its business. You are directed to immediately cease and desist from these activities unless this matter is resolved in accordance with the terms set forth in this letter by 5 p.m. on Friday, July 3, 2015, Theranos will consider all appropriate remedies, including filing suit against you. So Erica was not only nervous because of the address that they found her at, but also because the letter also said that if she wanted to avoid getting sued, then she would need to be interviewed by Theranos attorneys and tell them everything that she told to the reporters or anyone else about Theranos. Erica went home that night. She closed herself up inside her co-worker's house, and out of fear, she refused to go outside for anything for the entire weekend. Back in New York, John was getting a very strong feeling that Theranos had been applying pressure, and things were becoming tense for those who cooperated with him for his investigation. But that might very well have been the thing that caused Adam Rosendorf to rethink his decision to stop cooperating with John Kerrywood's investigation into Theranos because just about two months after Adam told John that he was backing off, John received a text message from him telling him that he was being threatened once again by Theranos attorneys, that they were accusing him of violating his affidavit. John and Adam got on the phone and John told him about the tense five-hour meeting that he had with Daniel Young and his entourage of attorneys. Fortunately, Adam didn't seem as worried as he had been in the beginning when he first made contact with John. He had gone to see a different lawyer about what was going on with Theranos, and it was causing Adam to not feel so intimidated by Theranos as much as he had been in the past. And it was during that phone conversation that Adam decided that he wanted to resume working with John and his investigation into Theranos' wrongdoings. That same evening, John received an email from Theranos attorneys. The gist of it from, and it was from super lawyer David Boyce, it was demanding that the Wall Street Journal destroy or return all of Theranos' trade secrets and or confidential material that they have. There was no way John or anyone at the Wall Street Journal was going to destroy or give away anything that they had related to Theranos, but Boyce knew that, so I suppose he thought it was worth a try. John figured that Theranos was going to attack back. He just wasn't sure how or when. But the following morning, John got a call from Erica that made it pretty clear that Theranos was on the warpath. Erica told him that a man had been waiting for her outside her work to serve her with papers from Theranos, that they are threatening to file a lawsuit if she doesn't tell them everything that she knows. John tried to reassure Erica that it's true that Theranos probably has hired someone to follow her around, but he was certain that Theranos had no evidence to show that she was one of John's confidential sources. He told her that they are most likely bluffing and that they had nothing on her. Just try to ignore the letter that she got and carry on like everything was okay. Erica was still very nervous, but she told John that she would do as he suggested. The next day, John got an email from Dr. Sundin. 
Remember, John had gone and done blood tests along with this doctor. They had both gone to a Theranos Wellness Center and the LabCorp, and they compared their results, and the Theranos results are way off and different from the LabCorp results. Well, apparently a Theranos representative had come by Dr. Sundin's office, and she was told that Sunny Belwani was in Phoenix and wanted to schedule a meeting with her. She said that she was unavailable to meet with him, which caused Sunny to become really mad and pouty. He told Dr. Sundin that her refusal to meet with him would have negative repercussions. Dr. Sundin went on record with John Kerry Ruth, so she wasn't a confidential source. And it's clear that this was an attempt to go after this doctor who had real and legitimate concerns with Theranos blood analyzers. So going after this doctor in the same manner that they had been going after his confidential sources was reprehensible. So John fired off an email to Theranos' attorneys and told them that he knew what happened with that Theranos rep that paid a visit to Dr. Sundin's office in Phoenix. And if he finds out about any more incidents where Theranos reps are attempting to visit anyone else in the same manner, that John would consider that to be newsworthy activities on their part and would include those details in his final article on Theranos. The reply to his email was that Theranos has done nothing wrong. The next day, the Wall Street Journal received a much longer letter from Theranos attorney David Boyes. This one was 23 pages in total. All of it threatening to sue the Wall Street Journal if they ran the story that defamed Theranos or published any of their trade secrets, while at the same time criticizing John Carreyrou and his work as a journalist, accusing him of failing to be fair and impartial and pushing everything in including the truth aside in order to publish a false narrative about Theranos. David Boyes apparently paid a visit to a couple of doctors who John had spoken to in Phoenix. They told Boyes that John was misinterpreting what they had told them when they met with him and that he didn't tell them that he was going to use what they told him in a news article that was going to be published. John didn't think that there was anything going on with those two doctors that would affect his overall stories with Theranos, but it did worry him that Theranos was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on people, like maybe those doctors which caused them to change their story into something more favorable to Theranos. That was very concerning, these Theranos pressure tactics. John did notice that there was a third doctor at that same practice as the two doctors who caved under Theranos's having coming down on them. And that third doctor had not signed the same statement that the other two doctors had, and her name was Adrian Stewart. John got in touch with her, and it turned out that the day Theranos visited their offices, she just happened to be out of town. Well, John told her that it was likely that when she got home, that she was going to be visited, and that they were going to use some pretty harsh tactics. And it turns out that John was right. As soon as Dr. Stewart got back to work in Phoenix, Sunny Belwani, along with two other men, did come to her office, but she said that she was booked the whole day with patients, so they decided to sit in her waiting room all morning and afternoon until she finally came out to speak to them. They wanted to meet with her two mornings from then. She did not want to go. She was getting a bad vibe about it, but she said that she agreed to go. So John waited to hear back from Dr. Stewart, but she didn't get back to him until later in the evening the day that she had the meeting. And when he did talk to her, he could tell that she was shook. 
Sunny had attempted to force her into signing a statement similar to the ones that the other two doctors at her practice had regarding their interactions with John, but she refused to sign it. Sonny's little temper started rising again. His temper was getting fired up, and he told Dr. Stewart that he would destroy her reputation if anything she says to the Wall Street Journal about Theranos is published. She then asked that John omit her name from the story. And John tried to convince her that Theranos was bluffing, but even then John wasn't even really sure what was going on. Maybe Theranos, Elizabeth and Sonny, Maybe they're the types of individuals who would really stop at nothing to make sure that they got things to go their way. Even though all of this is going on in Theranos' background, the very real probability that the Wall Street Journal is going to publish a blistering expose about Theranos and it's going to completely blow the lid off of everything that they've been trying to keep under wraps for years. There were a couple of things that happened for Theranos that was working in their favor. One is that Theranos received FDA approval for one of their proprietary finger stick blood draw tests for one of two types of HSV, which is herpes simplex virus. They got the approval for HSV-1. Generally speaking, HSV-1 is the oral breakout, like cold sores and HSV-2 is the genital strain. And the other good thing that happened is that there was a new piece of legislation that had been passed in Arizona that made it legal for people to get blood tests without needing an order from their doctor. It was a bill that Theranos lobbied for so hard that they pretty much wrote the law themselves. That new law was about to go into effect. So there were these two biggest things to happen for Theranos since going live in Walgreens 22 months earlier. The timing was perfect for Elizabeth to turn the FDA approval and the Arizona legislation into things to be celebrated by piggybacking it onto an Independence Day party at the Theranos headquarters. Elizabeth and Sunny gave their obligatory chest-thumping, rousing monologues at the cafeteria and once everyone was free of that, they were invited to go outside for drinks and food and music. Theranos began using the FDA approval for its HSV-1 blood test as actual proof that their blood analyzers worked. But it really wasn't all that big of a deal to begin with, especially for those who work in the industry and know what time it is. That HSV-1 test is one that gives a patient a yes or no answer. The problems that have been plaguing Theranos are the tests that are quantitative, the ones where a number needs to be produced, a quantity, a level, or an amount of an analyte in the blood to see if a patient has too much or too little of something. Most blood tests are quantitative. For example, if you take a blood test after you've been picked up on a suspicion of DUI, you're going to need a number, not a yes, you're drunk, or no, you're not drunk. You need a number to tell how intoxicated you are and if it crosses the threshold into being criminal. Just to make sure that the one FDA approval that Theranos received didn't mean that Theranos was suddenly a legitimate company, John contacted someone that he happened to know that worked at the FDA and his contact assured him 
that the one single FDA approval is by no means some kind of universal affirmation that Theranos' technology is sound. In fact, this contact told John that most of the data that Theranos provided to the FDA for several of their finger stick tests consisted of very poor data points and none of it would ever fly. John did also share some of the things that he had learned about Theranos' lab practices and that actually really bothered his contact at the FDA a lot. He found it to be very disturbing and think this included the diluted finger stick blood being tested on modified analyzers that Theranos had purchased commercially, fudging on their proficiency tests, and faulty results that doctors and patients have been receiving from Theranos. And by this time, it was July of 2015, and it had been three years since Elizabeth had that dust-up over the FDA with Lieutenant Colonel David Shoemaker. Remember when she was trying to push the Edison into the military vehicles and bases, and she tried dancing around the FDA regulations, but Shoemaker told her there's not a chance in hell that she was going to get anything put anywhere without FDA approval. So Elizabeth just quietly moved on from there and went fluttering around in places where she could get away with being in some kind of regulatory gray area until she no longer could. Since Theranos was using their own technology only within the confines of their company and not making them commercially available, Theranos was able to keep the FDA out of their business. But because they decided to start getting some of their lab-developed tests FDA approved, it gave this sort of pretendish, fakeish appearance that they were in compliance with the FDA. That made it look like that not only were they being cooperative, they were also showing public support for the FDA to begin regulating lab-developed tests, which is something most companies like Theranos usually lobbied against. They did not want to be over-regulated. It wouldn't be easy for the FDA to do anything to Theranos because of the company having shown so much public support, calling itself the biggest supporter of FDA oversight in the entire lab industry. Elizabeth had also become BFFs with the Obamas. She helped launch one of the president's medical initiatives. She was being invited to state dinners, attending these black tie events, making appearances, you know, it's all a part of her press tour. And you remember Roger Parloff from Fortune magazine, the first major magazine to put Elizabeth on the cover? Well, Roger was still under Elizabeth's spell because when he read the New Yorker article, he saw it as verification that Theranos had proven the quality and soundness of his technology. He called up Elizabeth wanting to speak to her for a second time following this new article. And while they were talking, Roger asked her about the Ebola virus. We know that Theranos had entertained the possibility of using their devices in areas being ravaged by epidemics and pandemics back in 2009 through 2010 when there was a swine flu outbreak. We talked about this back in part three when Elizabeth sent representatives down to Mexico and then they wanted to try to get into Asia. These were two places in the world that the swine flu pandemic was spreading quickly. 
But the pandemic slowly ended on its own before Theranos' ideas to deploy hundreds of Edisons into those countries ever really got off the ground. And aside from that, I told you in part three that the test for the swine flu is the same as it has been for COVID-19. Patients can be tested using a nasal swab. A blood draw is not necessary. But I don't know how well-known or widespread that information was. We made it through swine flu, but nothing really impacted us the way that COVID did. I remember hearing about the swine flu, but I don't remember ever really being all that concerned about it. And I don't remember being urged to get tested. And it seemed as though the symptoms for a swine flu showed up sooner than they did for COVID. So people knew more quickly that they were sick and needed to quarantine. And swine flu, although it was highly contagious, it didn't spread as easily and it didn't persist in the environment the way that COVID did. With COVID, it was like you could get sick from touching just about anything in any amount of time since somebody contaminated actually was around the area. It was like it was a, we were afraid to go anywhere or touch anything. So anyway, now Theranos finds itself in 2015 and the world has been dealing with the Ebola virus. And it was actually George Schultz who had said something about it publicly a couple months earlier, kind of in passing. And the test for Ebola is a blood test. And because the virus was hitting West Africa pretty hard since 2014, Roger thought that having the availability of a fast and easy finger stick test to get quick results would be a tremendous help in diagnosing cases of Ebola. And Roger wanted to write an article about Ebola and Theranos' potential in helping with early and fast detection. And Elizabeth told Roger that she was waiting on authorization for Theranos blood analyzers to be used in an emergency capacity. That would fast track it to being made readily available and hopefully sent to areas that are hardest hit by the Ebola virus. And then Elizabeth suggested that while they waited for the emergency authorization, that Roger could come and participate in a live demonstration of their blood analyzers at Theranos' attorney's law offices there in Manhattan. Roger was like, yeah, I'll be there. So Roger went over to the law firm a couple of days later where one of the Thera bros, Dan Edlin, was there to run the live demo. Roger was taken into one of their meeting rooms where he saw two of Theranos' blood analyzers that had been set up there on the conference table. These machines weren't Edison's though, they were mini labs. As a part of the test demonstration, Elizabeth told Roger that they were going to test for potassium levels also in addition to Ebola. He didn't really know why that test was being run specifically, but John Carreyrou believed it was because they had been having so many problems with their potassium test results. So Dan took two finger stick samples of blood from Parlov, one sample for each of the devices. Roger was told that they were going to do the Ebola test on one of the machines and the potassium test on the other. Now, like most journalists who did their homework, Roger did wonder why both tests were not being run on one machine simultaneously, but for whatever reason, he didn't ask the questions about it that he should have asked. He just kind of sort of went along. The test results were supposed to come back pretty fast, 
So Dan and Roger kind of sat in the room talking while they waited for the machines to do their thing and dispense some results. But it was getting close to about a half hour and there still wasn't anything happening. Dan explained the delay by saying that they had just arrived and the machines needed to go through this warming up process. You can kind of watch the progress of the blood test on the digital screen on the machine. Dan pointed it out to Roger and that is represented on the digital screen the same way as like when you download an app on your phone. And I don't know exactly what it's like for sure on a Samsung or any other Android device. But on an Apple device, when you go to the App Store and you go to download and then a little circle appears and then the circle slowly fills up in a clockwise manner. And once that circle is complete, that means the download is complete. That's how you watch for the test results to be finished on the Minilab and the Edison when the circle on the screen finishes. And there is a, per a percentage of completion on the inside of the circle that you can literally watch while you wait for it to tick up all the way to 100%. Well, after 30 minutes, Roger looked at the circle and the rate that it was filling up at, it looked like the results were going to take much longer than he was willing to wait because, well, he had to get back to work himself. Therabrodan, well, you know, he didn't go to this live demo on his own. And I was thinking as I was reading this, how are they sending this frat guy to run this actual live demonstration of the blood test? Well, it turns out that one of Theranos' chemical engineers was there also, and he was a guy named Kyle Logan. And I don't know where he was while Dan was running this test, but when Roger left, Kyle came in and took a look at the machines. The ones that were doing the potassium testing had got hung up and froze at about 70% complete. So Kyle went ahead and took the cartridge out. He blew on it like a classic Nintendo game, and then he rebooted the console. I'm kidding, he didn't do that but he could have and maybe it would have worked. But I don't think that this guy was trained in 1980s electronics troubleshooting methods. But Kyle did have an idea of why the machine got stuck. It was a trick and it came from the magical mystical world where one makes underwhelming fashion choices and drives overcompensating cars. And that fantastical world is the world of Sonny Balwani. He had ordered a piece of software to be developed by Theranos engineer Michael Craig. And what this software was designed to do was to deceive. Plain and simple. We know that the Edison and the Minilab are prone to errors. And those error messages do show up on their digital screens. In the past, Elizabeth and Sonny and whoever it was that they trained and instructed typically made excuses for those error messages. Oh, it's because we're in this remote location or we have poor connectivity. There's too many trees and shrubs around here, but they never came with a truth. And the truth is, is that everything about Theranos is an error. So to avoid having error messages pop up on the screens, what Sonny did instead was to go the way of a cover-up. He had Michael Craig write software that showed the progress percentage slowing down to a complete stop in place of the error message. Chemical engineer Kyle Logan was aware of this software subterfuge, so he knew that is what exactly what was happening while running Roger's potassium blood test. 
As it turned out, the test had completed enough prior to the fake error message that he was actually able to obtain a result from the machine because the machine actually runs the test itself and then it runs a secondary control test to compare. So technically, they would have wanted to have both the original and the control test so that they would be able to make a confirmation that the test was accurate. But when Kyle asked Daniel Young about the results without the control sample having been completed, Daniel told him to just record the results without the control comparison. So there is no actual real validation of the data here with this test. And who knows how many more tests that Theranos ran and recorded as accurate when they had no proof that they were. And these demonstrations were a key part of Elizabeth having been able to pretend to everybody, members of the board of directors, potential investors, and reporters like Roger Parloff, that their proprietary devices were complete and fully functioning blood analyzers that gave the most accurate results available. And you know, this creative software that Sunny ordered to be made isn't the only time that Theranos hoaxed their way through live demos. In fact, whenever Theranos ran demonstrations at the Palo Alto headquarters, there was always deception and trickery. They would have their victim go through the wonderful blood testing experience, as Elizabeth wants to call it, of getting their finger pricked. And it would always be from the finger of somebody who was really important. And then they'd go through the motions of getting that blood drop into the cartridge and stick it into the mini lab. And while all the bells and lights were going off, the visitor would be taken on a tour of the hallway or something. And while he or she was distracted, a lab technician would slither into the room, smuggle that blood down to the Jurassic Park lab, run the tests on a Siemens blood analyzer, and then slink back into the room and put the cartridge and plant the test results in order to make it look like the Edison or the mini lab had produced them. None of it was real. Roger Parloff did get his results later on that night via email, and he was very pleased to know that he did not have Ebola, and his potassium levels were on point. So he thought. You know that Adam Rosendorf had resigned from Theranos back in December of 2014, right? Remember, he gave his month's notice and then he took a vacation over Thanksgiving. But then when he got back to finish up his notice period, he was terminated immediately, threatened and shown the door. Well, he was the lab director. And ever since he left, Theranos had been operating without one, which is kind of a problem when you're running a clinical laboratory to have nobody in charge. So, in line with Sonny Balwani's crazy-ass ideas, he went and hired a doctor named Sunil Dawan. But it was more for just Sunil's name than anything else. His name was the one that was inserted in place of Adams on Theranos' CLIA certification. And that's pretty much all they needed because... Sunil wasn't the kind of doctor that you would normally find in the position of lab director. Such as a physician who is licensed to practice medicine in whatever state they're in to be certified in anatomical and clinical pathology 
by the American Board of Pathology, the American Osteopathic Board of Pathology, who possesses qualifications that are equivalent to those required for certification by either of those institutions within the 10 years immediately preceding application for a license, having successfully completed a four-year program accredited by the National Accrediting Agency for Clinical Lab Scientists, be certified as a general supervisor, or have at least four years of experience as a technologist in a licensed laboratory, lab of a hospital, health department, or university, as a full-time employee working at least 30 hours per week under the supervision of a director who possesses a doctoral degree, holds an earned degree from an accredited institution with a chemical, physical, biological, or clinical lab science as the major, and be certified by the American Board of Microbiology, Clinical Chemistry, Bioanalysis, Medical Lab, Immunology, Forensic Toxicology, Medical Genetics and Genomics, Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics, the National Registry of Certified Chemists, or any other institution approved by the Department of Health and Human Services. Those are the only qualifications a lab director needs. Dr. Sunil Dewan was a dermatologist. Now, to be a dermatologist, it takes a lot of years in education. You have to go to medical school. You have to earn your MD. The first two years, you have to study anatomy, biochemistry, and medicines in a laboratory setting. Then you learn how to examine patients, take medical histories, and make a diagnosis. The next two years, you work in a hospital or a clinic under the supervision of senior physicians. It takes about 12 years to become a dermatologist. You spend two years as an intern during medical school, and then after medical school, you complete your residency, which takes about four to five years. And after your residency, you take the exams to become board certified. I don't want to diminish or undermine the work it takes to become a dermatologist. Some of my favorite TikTokers are derm doctors. But to be a lab director is pretty specific, and I don't think you could just cram any old doctor into the position. But when your name is Sunny Blue Gucci's for Life Balwani, you look for those dodgy shortcuts, sidesteps, and get-arounds. It turns out that even though Dr. Sunil had nothing related to pathology in his background or certifications, he technically met the California state requirements at the time to have his name listed as a lab director because he was a doctor and he had been in charge of a small lab that analyzed skin cells. The lab director qualifications that I read off to you, I had googled those and the top results sent me to the Nevada state regulations that govern clinical labs. I can't imagine that California regulations currently being that much different, but when I looked at the Center for Medicaid and Medicare's website, its requirements were almost identical to what Nevada had listed. But you know, Sunny and Elizabeth, aka King and Queen of the Loophole, if it exists, they'll find it and they'll exploit the hell out of it. Sunny didn't care that Dr. Sunil was totally unqualified to be the lab director. He just needed a placeholder. And the truth was, the guy was never really there all that much. Sunny had asked Dr. Sunil to be the lab director in November of 2014, 
around the time that Adam Rosendorf gave his notice that he was resigning. Sunil had been Sonny's personal dermatologist for about 15 years, and while he accepted the role at Theranos, he did say in late 2021 that he never really did anything more than sign some paperwork here and there, and he appeared at the lab once, maybe twice, to the best of his recollection. Sonny asked him if he would fill the position temporarily and told him in an email that it would not interfere with his day job as a dermatologist. He was offered a salary of $5,000 a month, but Dr. Sunil said that he never cashed any of those checks and that he had actually requested to be paid in stocks instead. In all, from November of 2014 through the summer of 2015, Dr. Sunil worked for about a total of five no more than 10 hours for Theranos. He was around for a company audit in September of 2015, and by October of 2015, a month later, Dr. Sunil's role kind of sort of just died out without any official notice that he was no longer lab director. And while we know that John Carreyrou lobbed his explosive article that hit the newsstands on October 15th, 2015. Sunil Dalwan was asked to sign documents involving lab protocols while he was the technical lab director. And those documents also did have Adam Rosendorf's signature on them as well, despite the fact that Adam no longer worked there. This had Dr. Sunil feeling comfortable signing them since Adam's signature was on them too. He admitted that he never actually saw a mini lab or an Edison. He never saw one working. He was never shown one in person in real life. He was never told how the technology supposedly worked. He knew nothing. So the lab director here never saw the lab equipment, never used it, never saw it being used, and had no idea how it was constructed or what it did. By the way, Dr. Sunil had saved some of the text messages from around that time that they were being audited in September of 2015, where Elizabeth and Sunny were saying that they were praying for a good outcome for the audit in their text messages. And Sunil wasn't really aware of a time when executives in the biomedical technology industry sat in their offices and prayed for a good outcome. So clearly Theranos was really running on a wing and a prayer. With one motor gone, we can still carry on. Come on in on a wing and a prayer. That's the way to run a business in Elizabeth and Sonny's mind anyway. Let's just pray on it. The lab technicians didn't have anyone in charge. And at the time, their overall morale was pretty much in the garbage. Only a couple of months into Sunil's time as pseudo-director, Theranos had received a review on Glassdoor, which is a website that lets current and former employees leave reviews for companies anonymously. And while some Theranos employees made their way over to Glassdoor and let their feelings be known, and it wasn't good. And Sunny came into the lab and basically ripped everyone a new one for the withering comments that were left about Theranos. I couldn't get into Glassdoor to get a look at it because it was requiring me to write a review about a company. But in John Carreyrou's book, he shared one of the company reviews that was titled A Pile of PR Lies. It said, 
Super high turnover rate means you're never bored at work. Also good if you're an introvert because each shift is short-staffed, especially if you're swaying or graveyard. You essentially do not exist to the company. Why be bothered with lab coats and safety goggles? You don't need to use PPE at all. That's personal protective equipment. Who cares if you catch something like HIV or syphilis? This company sure doesn't. Brown nosing or having a brown nose will get you far. How to make money at Theranos? 1. Lie to venture capitalists. 2. Lie to doctors, patients, FDA, CDC, and government while committing highly unethical and immoral and possibly illegal acts. But dreamers, you know that Sunny isn't one to quietly stand by and allow people to recklessly throw around all of these truths and accuracies about Theranos. Oh no, don't come at Sunny and Elizabeth with any of that garbage. All that facts and honesty stuff is for the birds. It was time for Sunny to hit back with more of his fakery and lies by making sure that the negative Glassdoor reviews were offset by some positive ones that he manufactured. But the one that Carrie listed in his book really chapped Sonny's hide. And Sonny did manage to get it taken down after bugging Glassdoor to do so. And he actually, this idiot, this blue Gucci shoe-wearing idiot, actually went searching for the writer of that review. But Thank goodness he was never able to figure it out. And in the midst of all of this, no lab director having bad reviews on Glassdoor getting times that Theranos was going through. Vice President at the time, Joe Biden, was scheduled to pay a visit to Theranos headquarters on July 23, 2015. According to an article on johnlock.org, Theranos touted the visit in a press release as a new era of preventative healthcare summit. And both Theranos and Joe posted about the visit numerous times on Twitter. Even though Joe turned down the chance to be victimized, I mean tested by Theranos devices, of the company, Joe did say, talk about being inspired. This is an inspiration. It's amazing to me, Elizabeth, what you've been able to do. Joe further went on to praise the company for the affordable prices and making their game-changing technology available to the masses. And Elizabeth was captured on audio telling Joe, quote, it is an absolute, <clears throat> it is an absolute privilege and a tremendous honor to have Vice President Biden here with us. He is someone I so deeply respect, and I'm so inspired by the context of his service to our country and the bold actions he has taken in service to our country throughout his career. <sighs> That's exhausting, like trying to change the tone of your voice. I couldn't imagine doing it permanently. But anyway, of this visit, John Carreyrou wrote, Holmes and Belwani wanted to impress the vice president with a vision of a cutting-edge, completely automated laboratory. So... Instead of showing him the actual lab, get this, dreamers, they created a fake one. They made the microbiology team vacate a third smaller room, had it repainted, lined its walls with rows of mini labs stacked up on metal shelves. Since most of the mini labs had been 
built in Palo Alto, they had to be transported back across the bay for the stunt. The members of the microbiology team weren't sure why they were being moved at first, but they figured it out when a Secret Service advance team showed up a few days before Biden arrived. On the day of the visit, most members of the lab were instructed to stay home while a few local news photographers and television cameras were allowed into the building to ensure that the event got some press. Holmes took the vice president on a tour of the facility and showed him the fake automated lab. Afterward, Elizabeth hosted a roundtable about preventative health care on the premises with a half dozen industry executives, including the president of Stanford Hospital. During the roundtable, Biden called what he had just seen the laboratory of the future. He also praised Holmes for proactively cooperating with the FDA, stating, quote, I know the FDA recently completed favorable reviews of your innovative device. The fact that you're voluntarily submitting all of your tests to the FDA demonstrates your confidence in what you're doing. Don't forget, dreamers, John is in the background of all of this, taking it all in while he continues to push forward with his investigation into Theranos. And he said that a couple of days after the Joe Biden visit, John pretty much spit out his coffee when he read in his own newspaper an op-ed that Elizabeth Holmes herself had written. It was right there in his newspaper printed in black and white. His employer's paper. John was pretty perturbed by it because he was trying to get a straight story from Elizabeth, but all she did was stall and ignore. Then she sent in Daniel Young, flanked with grouchy attorneys who, remember, were also systematically tracking down and threatening anyone that they suspected of talking to John Carreyrou, only to find out that Elizabeth had the ability to use his own newspaper to peddle the BS from her throne of lies. Her article was the big win with the FDA, getting her herpes approved, and then calling everybody else out to get their lab tests FDA approved too, just like she does, because Elizabeth Holmes is chums with the FDA now, apparently. In the Wall Street Journal's defense, John does concede that their news departments and their editorial departments are kind of siloed off from one another. So they don't know what each other is working on. And the person who let Elizabeth's article in had no idea that Theranos was currently being investigated by the very same newspaper. John didn't talk specifics about the divide within the departments at the journal. If it's something that is typical of a media outlet like that, or if it's something there's something more behind it, like competitiveness or secrecy, Kind of like the way Theranos siloed off their employees from one another too, and that had to do with controlling the flow of information and communication. So even though John was annoyed with the article, it wasn't the editorial department's fault that everybody was drinking from Elizabeth's cup. He was pretty convinced that this was a calculated move on Elizabeth's part to try and throw a monkey wrench into his plans to publish his article about Theranos. And while all of this was going on, Theranos was in full-blown attack mode. They were ratcheting up the pressure on Adam Rosendorf 
and Sunny Balwani was actively harassing some of the patients who had spoken to John Carreyrou by phone, going off on them for the things that they said, if he was able to get them to talk to him at all, which I doubt that was very easy for Mr. Sonny Balwani, not exactly the friendliest guy in the world. John decided to send in a draft of his Theranos expose a few days early because of the pressure that was building. From there, his article would be looked at by his editor as well as Wall Street Journal attorneys to make sure that every single word was accurate and true. And this took a long time, sometimes a month or more. And John was getting nervous that Theranos attorneys were going to be able to hunt down his confidential sources and informants. And he went to his editor's office sometime after he submitted the article. And his editor was this Italian guy, and his name was Mike Sicanopoli. And from the way John described the whole encounter, it sounded like what would happen if you were regaled with one of Estelle Getty's trademark Sophia Petrillo picture it stories. So Mike Sicanopoli told John, be patient. This was a big story and they needed to make sure that it was 100% unassailable before they punished it. But John told him, I don't know what Theranos is up to, how close their attorneys are getting to my sources. It's pretty nerve wracking for everybody. And then Elizabeth writes this article in their own newspaper, along with that big old Joe Biden brouhaha a few weeks ago. And while Mike, he was always ready with one of his obligatory Italian stories with the Italian expressions and metaphors. And then Mike said to John, John, did I ever tell you about La Matanza? John settled in as he got ready to picture it. Mike said that La Matanza was an old Sicilian method of fishing where the local fishermen went to go stand in the Mediterranean while they held weapons in their hands. And they would be about waist deep in water and they would just stand there for many hours until the fish swimming around in the sea no longer realized that they were there. Then, when there were lots of fish that were gathered around the fishermen, they would get a signal to suddenly begin striking the fish with their weapons. La Matanza. Literal translation, the slaughter. Mike likened wanting to publish as being the same thing as wanting to strike. Wait patiently. And when they were ready, they hit. And then Mike pantomimed wielding a club violently around the room, which was actually pretty funny. John just had one request for Mike, that they get the story published before Elizabeth had a chance to speak at the Wall Street Journal's annual tech conference, which was scheduled for that October in Laguna Beach, California. John found out that Elizabeth was on the list of guest speakers and it would be kind of awkward if his article published after Elizabeth's appearance at their own conference. Mike said, yeah, that would be awkward. They would publish before the conference then, which was two and a half months away. You know when Elizabeth found out that the Wall Street Journal was investigating her company. Within a month of John starting his look-see into Theranos, 
Elizabeth was on top of it, looking for ways to bury the story and to bury John Carreyrou. So back to March of 2015, Elizabeth began planning her counter-strike, and one of them had to do with another old, rich, white guy, this time with an Australian twist, one Mr. Rupert Murdoch. Currently, he is the 34th richest person in the United States. He became a naturalized citizen in 1985, and I looked, and he is not listed on Australia's richest people's list. And Rupert is currently the 96th richest person on the planet. So in March, Theranos was in the middle of one of their biggest rounds of fundraising to date. In all, they had raised $430 million, and $125 million of that came from Rupert himself, more than 25% of their grand total, and single-handedly, Theranos' largest investor. Well, what's the big deal? Just so happens that Rupert Murdoch, among other things, is a media mogul. He was the chairman and CEO of News Corporation from 1980 to 2013, executive chairman of News Corporation from 2013 to the present time. He had also been a chairman and CEO of 21st Century Fox from 2013 to 2015, executive co-chairman of 21st Century Fox from 2015 to 2019, acting CEO of Fox News from 2016 to 2018, chairman of Fox News from 2016 to 2019, chairman of Fox Corporation from 2019 to the present, and he is presently a board member of Fox Corporation and News Corporation. And what is the big deal? Turns out that News Corporation is the Wall Street Journal's parent company, and investing in Silicon Valley was one of Rupert's recent favorite pastimes. So how well did Rupert do in the whole Silicon Valley venture capitalist game? Well, we know he invested in Theranos, and we all know how that train derails. But what about before Theranos? Well, I guess his biggest claim to fame would be something, a little something that Rupert saw that was a brand new startup back in 2009 called Uber Cab currently called Uber. Rupert dropped about $150,000 into their little ride-sharing app idea, and he walked away with $50 million. And when I said Rupert did this for fun, I really mean that he did this for fun. He just found companies that sounded good to him and his gut feelings, and he just went with it. He didn't do much research or due diligence, as it were, If he liked a pitch, then he pitched money right back at them. Rupert was a perfect investor for a predator like Elizabeth, who preyed on older, impressionable, easy-to-charm rich men, and rich women too. Rich women were not immune to Elizabeth's ways. At the time that Rupert linked up with Theranos, he was 84 years old. So with Elizabeth telling him things that he wanted to hear that sounded like music to his ears, stuff like Theranos was developing technology that would add years and years to people's longevity, and that she wants this to be a world in which 
we never have to say goodbye to anyone younger than 115 years old. And Rupert was like, I want to live to 115. And Elizabeth was like, all right, have some Kool-Aid. And Rupert is a man who's about money. So he was curious as to what the numbers that Theranos was crunching looked like too. After all, Theranos would turn out to be Rupert's biggest investment outside of his media assets. According to John Carreyrou, the investment packet that Elizabeth gave to Rupert forecast $330 million in profits on revenues of $1 billion in 2015 and $505 million in profits on revenues of $2 billion in 2016. And the truth, which came out at trial some six years later, showed that in 2015, Theranos' tax returns showed that their accumulated deficits on their books had reached $575 million. That means the total losses since the inception of the company, $575 million. But a document was produced that showed a financial forecast of $990 million in revenues for 2015, and that's just $10 million less than the projection that Elizabeth had set Rupert. Because, you know, in Elizabeth's and Sonny's little worlds, $1 billion sounds way better than $990 million in any language any day of the week. Rupert was also comfortable with his investment because of the company of other investors that he was joining. Jim Kennedy at Cox Enterprises, the Waltons of Walmart, Larry Ellison, co-founder of Oracle, Don Lucas, the super investor, the DeVos family, Patriots owner, Bob Kraft, John Elkin, who ran Fiat Chrysler, and some Mexican tycoon named Carlos Slim. Those were the biggest names and the biggest investors across time. And from the time that Rupert casually dropped $125 million into Theranos to the time that John Carreyrou sat down with his editor, Mike, and he pictured it, Elizabeth had met Rupert privately on three separate occasions. The third of those meetings had taken place in Palo Alto. She had invited Rupert to come and see the mini lab, and it was during that visit that Elizabeth casually mentioned that John Carreyrou and that he was writing this article and he was writing it for the Wall Street Journal. You know, Rupert, that little newspaper that you're in charge of. And you see that John Carreyrou article, it's just going to be <clears throat> that John Carreyrou article is just going to be full of lies and falsehoods and fibberies and untruisms. If that article gets published, that could be highly damaging to Theranos' reputation and my reputation. But Rupert, he didn't really concern himself too much with it. He had complete and total faith and trust in his staff. Can you imagine if Elizabeth and Sonny were able to say the same thing? That they had faith and trust in their staff? if they were even capable of that. I don't even know if they would have ever really gotten anywhere if they had believed in the highly trained, highly educated, highly capable individuals that they hired over the years. But the story 
certainly could have played out much differently for everybody if they had. Anyway, like I said, Rupert, he didn't concern himself with what Elizabeth was telling him, even though he had just dropped 125 mil, he wasn't going to intervene. And then it was a little more than two weeks away from showtime, late September of 2015, that Elizabeth showed up at Rupert Murdoch's Midtown Manhattan office in the News Court building. Just three floors below sat John Carreyrou, completely unaware that the elusive Miss Holmes was right there in the building. She came there specifically to talk to Rupert about John's article. But he again told her, even though he has a lot of money invested in her company, it's all relative, right? And the infamous words of that killer or pretty close to serial killer, Pam Hupp. In Rupert's world, $125 million just isn't a lot of money. Remember when Pam said that about Betsy Faria's life insurance policy? In my world, $150 million isn't anything. If I really wanted to get some real money, I would just, I hate to say this, but I would just kill my mother. She's worth a half a mil, easily. Oh God, I hate that woman. I really... Someday, I keep talking about her, I mentioned it in social media that I was going to cover the Pam Hupp story once it is all said and done and finished. I know that Pam is facing the death penalty, but she gets convicted of Betsy's murder. And if they decide that they're going to try her for her mother's murder, I'm definitely going to revisit that story when the whole thing is done and played out. But anyway, yeah, so in Rupert's world, $125 million isn't a lot of money. But even though he had a stake in Theranos, he wasn't going to intervene when it came to the Wall Street Journal's upcoming article. And it's kind of surprising that Elizabeth would run into this kind of roadblock in Rupert Murdoch. She was so used to having her way and for people to skirt their better judgment to take her side. But this time, Elizabeth was trying to wheel and deal on some pretty sacred ground in the world of journalism as the man at the top of the company that runs the Wall Street Journal. It's a bad look for him to try and silence John Carreyrou, or to even think about it. John is at the time, and was and is, an established Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist. He's done his time, and he's proven himself, and he's certainly not at the Wall Street Journal for no reason, and Rupert has no business stepping on anybody's toes, and he knew better of it. No amount of money, no amount of Elizabeth swagger was going to get him to sway. And I respect that. Not everybody in Rupert's position would stand by his lowly staff, especially in the face of somebody like Elizabeth. But journalism, it seems like it's a different kind of monster, one that is very, very protected and one that can make or break a career with one scathing article, including 
Rupert Murdoch's career and reputation. While Elizabeth was busy trying to squash Carrie Rue's article, her attorneys were busy trying to threaten everybody else who was cooperating with John. Rochelle Gibbons got a threat that Theranos was going to sue her if she didn't stop making false and defamatory statements about Theranos to the media. Dr. Sundin, who had spoken to John about her gripes with Theranos, was getting a slew of negative reviews on Yelp about her private practice. Others were threatened, but not really losing any sleep over it, included many of John's sources who went on the record, that nurse Carmen Washington who told John about three patient complaints, Maureen Gluntz, who spent the day before Thanksgiving in the ER getting a whole bunch of tests run because of faulty Theranos results, tests that she didn't need, tests that ultimately cost her $3,000 out of pocket. Theranos attorneys tried threatening all of them too, but they weren't worried, not in the least. They didn't sign any NDAs, and they could really say whatever the hell they wanted about Theranos as long as it was true. And John was still very much in touch with Erica Chung and Adam Rosendorf. But the one person John hadn't heard from in a while, as they were getting closer to publication, was Tyler. John tried contacting him a few times through his mom, but no dice. And he never got any notification that anyone had gotten to Tyler or coerced him into recanting the things that he had said. John would have received that information to that effect if they had had, because then he wouldn't have been able to run anything that Tyler told him in his article. And David Boy's super attorney made one final Hail Mary to try to get the Wall Street Journal to pull the article from being published in the form of a third letter that was sent to the journal in which Boy's tripled down on his threats to sue them, calling John's story a fantasy. Carrie Rue shared portions of Boy's letter in his book. I have tried to figure out how we could have arrived at a place where the journal is considering publication of an article that we know to be false, misleading, and unfair that threatens to disclose information that Theranos rigorously protects as trade secrets. The root of the problem may be the drama of the reporter's original thesis, which may fall into the category of too good to check. That thesis as Mr. Carriru explained in discussions with us, is that all of the recognition by the academic, scientific, and healthcare communities of the breakthrough contributions of Theranos' achievements is wrong, that every previous published report about Theranos, including the journal itself, has been the result of misleading manipulation by the company, and that the company and its founder are essentially perpetrating a fraud by touting a technology that does not work and using existing commercial equipment to do tests that Theranos pretends are done on new technology. Certainly such an expose, if true, would be a powerful piece of investigative journalism. The problem may be that even though that thesis is not true, it's just too dramatic to let go of. David Boyce's letter wanted a meeting with the Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief, Jerry Baker. That meeting would also include John, his Italian editor, Mike, and a couple of the paper's standard editors, Jay Conti and Neil Lipschutz. They are the ones, these standards editors, they look for fairness in an article, 
that the article is logical, that it makes sense, that there are no typos, and that the article is basically consistent with the style of the publication. The meeting was set for October 8, 2015, eight days before the day. Publication day. Let's call it P-Day, just for shits and giggles. So David Boys showed up with only two of his grumpy lawyer friends at this time, and they really tried hard to argue that John Carreyrou's investigation was all lies and inaccuracies. But Theranos' attorneys did admit to two things. They admitted that Theranos did not run all of its blood tests on its own devices, but Boys called the transition from testing on third-party devices to testing on Theranos devices a quote-unquote journey. And it was taking them some time to make that journey fully complete. The second thing that they admitted was the fact that John had recently been on Theranos' website and noticed that the statement, quote, most of our tests require only a few drops of blood, unquote, was suddenly gone. John asked why that statement was taken off the website. One of the attorneys, Heather King, remember her, Hillary Clinton's assistant, whatever, seemingly accidentally admitted that it was a marketing accuracy move. She later denied ever saying that, even though she recorded the entire meeting herself. But the journal wasn't budging. They were not killing the article. David Boyes made one more valiant effort to get the journal to change their mind. They offered to demonstrate Theranos' blood analyzers for them, live and in person. Just put off the article for a little while and the they would make the arrangements. They had done one for Fortune. They had offered to do a demo for Joe Biden. They wanted to offer the journal staff a demo too. That way, they could prove to John Carreyrou that he was wrong about his assertions regarding Theranos' technology, that their machines actually do work. Well, the people of the journal, they were like, okay, well, we want to know when, and they want to know how they could be sure that there was not going to be any Lizzie Sunny funny monkey business going on with the results. David Boys asked for a few weeks. He was vague and he hemmed and he hawed about nailing down the specifics. So all the journal people said was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. They decided that P-Day had to be before Elizabeth's speech at their annual tech conference, and that was only two weeks away. They didn't have time to dilly-dally over getting a demo done, they had eight months to offer them that. So it's a case of too little, too late. Boys was told that they would be able to wait maybe another week or so at most to give Elizabeth the time to decide whether or not she wanted to speak directly to John Carreyrou. But Lizzie Liz never called and P-Day finally arrived. John Carreyrou's story hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal on October 15, 2015, with a headline reading, Apprised Startup Struggles. John called his headline understated, but he knew its contents were going to be catastrophic for Elizabeth and her baby, Theranos. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to stop there. That's two episodes, two days in a row, back to back. 
I think there is going to be maybe only one more part, possibly two. I am going to include some information from Elizabeth's trial that somebody is helping me out with. So there might be one more part and then an addendum. It just depends on how long this all turns out to be. We're finally getting very, very close to the end and I'm so excited. I'm so scared. I'm just kidding. I want to remind you to join the Facebook group, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. I'm also on TikTok, but that's mostly videos of my dogs. Don't forget that if you're looking for something to dive into while you're waiting for the next installment of California Dreaming, check out the content that we have on Patreon. There are a number of single episodes, some multi-part episodes. It's a good variety. There's something for everybody except for your kids. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. I love you all. I'll be back soon.